Welcome to The Social Universe, a podcast by PhD students about society, politics and the academic universe. Ranging from what it's like to be a PhD student in the social sciences to how we understand and navigate things that are happening in the world around us. I'm Kate and I'm a third year politics PhD student. I'm B, and I'm currently a second year PhD student based in sociology and social policy. And I'm Ben and I'm a second year sociology of work PhD. Hi, welcome to this week's episode of The Social Universe. I'm B, And I'm Katie. And we don't have Ben with us this week. Um, he is off trying hard not to fail his PhD, which we very much support. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and he'll probably be back again next time. So in this week's episode, we're going to be talking about uh, research culture. Consistently, research has found disproportionate levels of stress and poor mental health amongst researchers, including PhD students. But why is that? Is it because the people who are more likely to pursue research careers have an increased susceptibility for mental health issues? Or is it something about the research environment itself? Today, we will be discussing what has become known as toxic research culture, exploring what is meant by this term, reasons why things may have got so bad, and if there's anything PGRs can do about it. Before we properly get stuck into some of the literature and debates around this topic, Kate, what's your take of it? So I think um, in general, I've been pretty lucky. Um, We were just saying before that we've both got really great supervisors and stuff. And I think um, if anything, so I I work from home a lot and I think that slight removal from the research environment does me a favour because I'm not in amongst everyone who's constantly stressed and stressing each other out. Um, But I think there's definitely a clear sign that... um, you know, a lot of people are really struggling and I think it's a really important issue. Yeah. And I think it's definitely something which I was going to say, actually, I was going to ask you about because we've both been in jobs which were quite high stress. My job Mm. before my PhD, maybe not my immediate job for my PhD, but definitely the one before my master's. I was, I was really stressed and quite ill in. So, um, it's not the case that we've been coming from jobs where this wasn't a problem either. Yeah, agreed. Um, but I suppose it's different. And so I was wondering, maybe asking you, like, what do you think is different about the kind of research environment and culture to other t- types of stressful jobs, for example, and high intense jobs? So I, I talked about this a bit in the um, literature review episode, because for me, I came from a really fast paced, really intense job. Um, and as you say, was very, very stressful and I really didn't get on well in it. Um, but coming here, it's a very different kind of stress because you're working very slowly. You're doing really long, long projects that you wouldn't really do in any other context. And so that comes with a completely different type of stress altogether. And so I think um, it is a significant contrast, but I don't think, I think there's a tendency for people who are not in academia to think, oh, you get long holidays and you, um, you know, you just do what you like all the time. Um, and actually my experience is that it's the exact opposite of that. A lot of people work really long hours. They don't take their holidays and they work very, very hard. And it's just that it's quite a slow process to, to, do academic research so it just feels like maybe you're not getting anywhere and I think that's that's what you're told by people outside and it's also how you feel yourself from the inside um and so if anything the the culture in other organizations and other types of industries for really fast-paced work high stress environments almost makes it look as if academia should be a laugh um and it's not (laughs) absolutely so 
maybe it's worth spending a little bit of time talking about some of the kind of research and reports that have come out recently. Um, that's one of the reasons that prompted this episode um, and yeah, outline some of those. So something that I was looking at um, was the Wellcome Trust report. The Wellcome Trust funds um, scientific research and they published this report, which they have quite a damning indication as to the research environment that that research is being um like conducted in um I think you've got some statistics in front of you I yeah. wonder what stood out to you from that report as to like particularly kind of relevant um for our discussion yeah so it talked about mental health and stress um and they it's apparently 53 percent of people who responded to this survey um said they'd either sought or wanted to seek professional help for anxiety or depression um which is a really high number um, if I think about you know in other work environments I've been in it's been nothing like that and just you know anecdotally <laughs> yeah and i i picked one on that as well and also that um nearly two-thirds had witnessed bullying or harassment mm-hmm. um and 43 have experienced it themselves and this is something which i've i have heard about um you know bullying harassment um in in other workplaces and it's been an issue i've been a trade unionist so i i've kind of been aware of it as an issue in the workplace but it wasn't until i came into academia that i started hearing about it in, in this level, like that it's a common experience and that it's going on at this sort of like level. And those levels, that's, I mean, that's high. <laughs> it is, that's that's really high. It's unacceptably high. Um, yeah, was there anything else from there? Yeah, that- so, um, well, precarity. So 29% of people said that they felt secure in their jobs, which is so low that it also completely reflects um, everything you hear about academic um, job security because so many people are on um, you know temporary contracts and it's very hard to get um, you know permanent jobs. So it's not surprising in a way, but it's also shocking that less than a third feel secure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that links to I mean some of the other research that I was looking at um, for this and also for some of the things I've been involved in. Um, so. PhDs are conducting research, you know, in the academic culture, but the statistics about PhD research is slightly different. Um, but the, I'm trying to remember where I got this from. <laughs> I don't know. It, I think it's a higher education survey of PhD students. And this year it said that only 14% of um, PhDs that filled out the survey of like, I think about 4,000 or something like that. No, sorry, this one was a 50,000. It was a really mm-hmm. big study. And they said, that only 40% of them have low anxiety. So therefore, <laughs> let me do the math, 86% have more than low anxiety. Yeah. Um, and a national kind of average would be like, or uh, the, the general population of it's about 41% would say they have low anxiety. Yeah. So, I mean, that yeah. totally reflects my experience. So many people I know who do PhDs have got mental health problems and not necessarily, um, you know, basically when I say that, almost all of them have either anxiety or depression um, or both. And so it's incredibly common for among PhD students. And I mean, we did briefly discuss before we started this podcast about whether that's an issue of the kind of people that are attracted to do PhDs or if it's the if it's the environment for the PhD, um, which is difficult to say. I think it's probably a bit of both, um, but it's, it's astoundingly high. <laughs> yeah, and I suppose one of the things that I would say... Uh, we definitely have applied this when I've worked with children is that even if 
someone has got a particular disposition. For example, they've got a behavioural, like a biologically driven behavioural um, need or difficulty. Um, you can't change that, but the environment maybe can support them better. Yeah. So if if it is the case, even, if, even if it was the case that academics are just really highly strong perfectionists and that just causes all these issues, if they're the people that are driven to this career, then then the industry needs to support them in that yeah. um, and what they're doing. Um, I think the only thing I wanted to mention in terms of the kind of current debate in literature was there's a really interesting academics uh, article published this month um, by Mark Erickson, Paul Hanna and Carl Walker. Um, and what they did is, again, they did a survey of academics, but um, what they did was they did two things. The survey side of it, which I think had just under... 6,000 people respond. They created a league table of satisfaction amongst staff, which is funny because uh, metrics and satisfaction surveys amongst students is is being used often to assess standards. But if the standards of universities were assessed based on how happy their staff were, that would probably throw them all on their heads. <laughs> um, but that overall mean satisfaction score was just 10%. <laughs> um, and generally, I think when they in the league table then the university which came top still only had a satisfaction rating of 35 percent so that was the best That's and the many standard. <laughs> many had a satisfaction rate with their current management of like five percent um but the other part of their thing that they did and uh, sorry i will move on from this is they also did a thematic analysis of the kind of qualitative data in the survey and showed that the seven major themes um, that people were talking about as as causing like dissatisfaction with the research environment was dominance in the brutality of the metric system. So like we're one of the most surveillance um, rankings, scales, all these different things, um, excessive workload, the governance and accountability structures, what they describe as the higher education fantasy football. And I didn't read the section, but maybe we could have a look. But I think it's this, <laughs> We are both fantasy football fans. <laughs> we are indeed. Um, the perpetual change... And the loss of institutional memory, which I we could definitely talk about because I've I've had that um, vanity projects, the silenced academic, and then the whole like you know notion that work is a mental health hazard. Um, so I mean that's a long list. I, I recommend people read the article; it's really interesting. Um, my question when we when we see all of these different studies coming out talking about high levels of mental health, bullying, harassment, long work hours, casualization, like how is that? for you as a PhD student, fairly new to this kind of world to be hearing all that stuff on a daily basis? It's not exactly encouraging. I mean, I think there's there's two consequences from my point of view. So one of them is it almost feels like there's a sense of inevitability, sorry, inevitability about it, where you, in a way, it almost normalises it. It's like, well, everyone's dissatisfied. Everyone's got mental health issues. Everyone works really long hours and everyone's in a precarious work contract. And that in a way is like, well, no, we shouldn't, we shouldn't just be reporting on it. We should be saying that this is not acceptable. We should be, you know, standing up against it and trying to come up with solutions. And I think, and not, not that I'm saying we shouldn't be doing this, this, these studies. I think they're the important first stage, but it just, it can be a bit depressing um, to be someone who's in the low ranks of academia listening to how it doesn't ever get any better. If anything, it gets worse. Um, it's not encouraging. And I, you know, 
I don't particularly want to stay in academia and I've got other reasons, but that is actually one of them that I just think it's not a welcoming environment. It's not the kind of place that I can see myself working in the future because it's, it's not supportive. And if anything, it's damaging. How do you feel? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I've, I think I spoke on, a, on other podcasts that we've done about that dauntingness really of kind of, I was saying it's like dipping your toes in, but really, uh, I mean, a PhD is a full immersive experience, <laughs> but it's, it's different because it's, I think throughout the process, it, it becomes more intense, but it, it grows on you rather than you're just there. But, you know, I, what I, what I don't like is that as a PhD student, when I talk about these things, I almost feel like someone's going to, because the, the, the culture is so universally accepted in a way like you said it's just become so normalized that it's almost like if we were to speak out and say no I don't want that to be the work environment that I'm in that someone's gonna say or go well well you know you don't have you you're not cut out for it then mm -hmm. or you just have to accept it you yeah. can't have it all type thing because for me I'm thinking well actually I, I do really care about this and I I really want to um recently I, I think I do really want to be involved in academia both in the research side but also teaching and and yeah, I'm really into it all, but I don't want that to be at the expense of like my relationships and mental health. Yeah. And that doesn't feel like that should be like, that doesn't feel brattish. Yeah. <laughs> but I think there's like a thing that if you were to say that and to actually enforce that and you're like, no, I'm only going to work a reasonable hour a week that somehow that would be seen that way. Like you're just being selfish or I don't know. Yeah. I, I find that hard. Yeah. It's like accepted, like, yeah, you just have to do it. Mm -hmm. And maybe when you become a professor, then you can speak out about this kind of thing. Yeah. So that's, that's, it's too late. <laughs> At that point, you've already participated in the culture. <laughs> yeah. And actually I, I sought some feedback from people that have been involved a bit longer than me. And one of them said the, one of the hardest things actually is resisting. Um, she didn't give specific examples, but resisting the pull towards um, picking up like bad practice and mm -hmm. doing bad practice because it's easier or because that's what everyone else is doing and to kind of maintain like integrity. Um, I don't know whether she's talking about like in terms of students or research or just in terms of conduct with other colleagues, but yeah. Yeah. I was talking to a friend of mine about this actually, because um, there's a, there's a thing in my department where they, you have the opportunity to submit um, a paper and then you get feedback from the whole department, which is really a you know great thing. I've got some really useful feedback from it. Um, and it's the idea is that it helps you to get your work published. Um, but part of the premise of it is that you get really brutal feedback from one person. And the idea is they're like, they take on the role of a reviewer too. So they are, they absolutely annihilate, annihilate your work. They give you only negative feedback and it's as brutal as it can be. And the idea is that it, first of all, hopefully you should improve your work because you know the worst things and you know what to work on. Um, but also that it toughens you up because you you get used to getting all this negative feedback and you know how to cope with it because you've done it in what is a relatively safe environment. Um, but one of my friends in particular really hates this idea and I totally agree with her, which is that you shouldn't have to get used to that. What we should be saying is if you're giving feedback to someone, whether it's someone you know well or if it's a, a you know an anonymous paper that you're reviewing, 
you should be giving sensible, practical, useful feedback and being considerate. Even if you think something's dreadful, you should find, maybe, maybe you don't need to find something positive, but you don't have to be absolutely brutally cruel to someone about it. Well, it's about assessing the work and not the person. And, yeah. I, and I try and say that to myself, you know, like I am not the most experienced researcher and it's okay for me to not be perfect and I'm learning. Mm-hmm any criticism I get isn't about my character, it's about my work. However, when people give certain reviews, they make it very personal, then it's hard to have that distinction. Like, so I have a question, which is maybe a bit cynical, but I wondered what your thoughts were, which is that, um, although I, I thought it was brilliant that the Wellcome Trust, you know, put out the report and that they're taking an interest into the culture in which the research they're paying, like funding is being produced. But I wondered if there's more of a concern around it recently because it's beginning to be understood that research that's conducted in these environments isn't isn't as good and actually the quality of what we're putting out there in recent years under these conditions is like bad as a result or it's at least not as good as it could be. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know, do you agree with that? Like, do you think? I absolutely agree with that. So I I think one of the big problems from my point of view is... um, the, and I mean, a lot of academics have said this, that there's a big culture shift in recent years towards um, uh, constantly assessing how people are performing in terms of the outputs of their work, both the quantity, but also what impact they're having with it. And I think in some ways that's a really good thing because it's um, like for me personally, I want, I'm doing my research because I want to have an impact. I want, I don't want it to just sit on a shelf somewhere and get forgotten. I want it to help people. Um, But there's so much pressure on people to constantly be performing and jumping through hoops and meeting certain expectations that is set by the government or people who are very far removed from the process that it actually means that a lot of the time people aren't doing necessarily like genuinely good work. Um, And that reminds me of something that Peter Higgs has said. So he's famous for predicting the discovery of the Higgs boson particle. I say particle, I'm not a scientist, so apologies if I've got that wrong. (laughs) Um, Anyway, he said that in the current academic market, he wouldn't get a job because when he was going through um, his research process, when he you know came up with this concept, he was basically producing no research outputs at all. Um, and if he were applying for a job in that you know nowadays, but at that stage of his life, then he would have nothing on his CV and he would not get hired because you need to have a certain number of publications or whatever. And so he said that. Also, the consequence of the current um, situation is that he wouldn't have been able to make the breakthrough that he did because every year uh, his department would go to him and say, what research outputs have you got? And he would say, none. (laughs) Um, But that's because he was, what it did was afford him the space to think and to do whatever it is that physicists do. Um, (laughs) uh, And that meant that he then had this amazing breakthrough and then it led to a really important discovery down the line and then he got himself a Nobel Prize and he's joked about the fact that his department only kept him on because they thought there was a chance he was going to get a Nobel Prize and then that in itself gets a certain degree of notoriety for his department. Um, and so if he's saying that his discovery wouldn't have happened with in the current environment then I think that suggests that there's a lot of other discoveries that maybe are not going to be made because there's not the time for people to actually spend thinking about these things. Instead, there's too much pressure to perform in in various different ways that 
are measured on arbitrary metrics basically yeah absolutely and i mean i think about that a lot a lot of a lot of like leading you know not just in the sort of natural sciences but social sciences as well and philosophy people mm. who spend years and years kind of doing academic things <laughs> and and i understand the kind of needing especially in a, in a climate of um public funding and funds you know austerity that where public money is received, it should be justified. But the problem is, is that how do you measure that? Mm -hmm. And this is something which in my own research around public sector working comes up all the time, which is that, so, I, you know, my research on child protection, no one's questioning about whether or not we should protect children. But the ways in which we have decided that it's best to measure performance and the what we're recording and um, how we're recording it and things like timeframes and deadline and all of these things, which I won't go into it, it's all kind of subtly transforming what it is that's being done. So some people would argue in social work, for example, it's gone from being like a kind of relational practice, social work to being more like case management. Mm -hmm. And it hasn't happened like on one particular day. It's happened over time as like different processes have come in to improve it but have ended up turning it into like an altogether different thing. Yeah. Um, and that, and that's, I think there's a lot of parallels with academia. So I suppose, what do you think are some of the causes of that? I think, as you mentioned, it's to do with um, cuts. So there's not as much money available and it means that people have to work harder for their funding, which in some ways is not a bad thing, but it means that when it, goes to the extreme that it's at now it obviously creates a huge amount of pressure and it can inhibit good research um but i think there's also is it, i guess part of the neoliberal agenda of like you know quantifying everything and you know setting targets and all that stuff it creates so much pressure on people um that actually it is inevitable in a way that it leads to stress anxiety and even I mean, I, I don't want to say that bullying is inevitable, but it, you know, when people are under stress, that can happen. And I think that the 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 pressure of these things is immense. I think it's the competition, isn't it, as well? Because yeah. it's sort of like if you've got kind of scarcity of resources and everyone's competing for funding or promotions or whole institutions are competing to get students, to get funds. And it's and all of that way of trying to, you know, secure money. <laughs> we know it from other from other aspects of the economy. It, it the best model to do that is to kind of reduce all of your costs, maximize your efficiency, and that is applying a kind of market logic to learning and research. It's also been applied, like you said, neo through neoliberalism to elements in the public sector. And the big kind of question is: is is it working? Like, mm -hmm. is it an effective way of running these? these sectors um and like for your example is given is brilliant because it kind of is like well actually maybe it's not if, mm -hmm. if our sole goal here is to kind of create meaningful quality research that can have some sort of real impact <laughs> <laughs> um then is that what's being done or is all of this work kind of well, actually, you've got the article in front of you, the bullshit jobs article. Yeah. Because <laughs> there's a really good quote in there, actually, about the amount of work that's done, the amount of time that goes into applying for grants that aren't. Yeah. So it says that um, among European universities, 
Um, they now spend at least 1.4 billion euros a year on failed grant applications. <laughs> 1.4 billion euros. Now, I mean, I'm, I'm not putting that down because I think that failure is a very, very important part of academia. Um, and that's, you know, that's how we learn. But that is a crazy amount of money. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think just going back to the impact point as well, um, it can overlook the value in in certain well, in probably all subjects, um, to some extent, because there's certain certain departments in particular where measurable impact is going to be pretty low. For example, if you think about philosophy, as you mentioned, you know, I've I did a degree in philosophy, and the skills it gave me, I think, were pretty, um, you know, invaluable. They were, you know, to that critical thinking and um, being able to explain complicated. Uh, concepts in a very concise way. So I'm trying to be concise here and <laughs> a lot of pressure. Um, uh, it's really important and it's, but it, it is very hard to, you know, put that into a impact, um, you know, statement or whatever. And so I think if you try and quantify these things, it, it becomes, it really undermines what you're actually doing. And the, one of the weird consequences of someone I was just speaking to was telling me um, that they work for a think tank and they've just started doing that recently and as an academic they never got invited to anything um but then as soon as they were suddenly under this banner of a think tank they, they got invited to all these events and to take part in all this work um and so to some extent we're it's the system that's the problem because we are not able to have an impact because people don't want to work with academics <laughs> and so what if you really want academics to have an impact you need to start changing outside conditions not just start getting people to prove that they can do these things. And it starts make, putting pressure on for academics to start specialising in PR and social media and networking because they need to get the right contacts in order to have the right impact. And that's not what a lot of people's skill set is. <laughs> no. And I think for me, in terms of changing the system and uh, people could maybe put forward other opinions, I don't know. Um, the current strategy of marketising education and running it as something which is both getting public funds but is also a business mm -hmm. that's trying to kind of create a surplus and have profit and all these things it's just completely counter to having a kind of learning environment and every university I've worked at it's been this fundamental tension I used to work in well-being services and my former employer and me had quite a sharp conversation about this because she was like well we're a business at the end of the day and I said well some of us think we're an educational provider like <laughs> um and so maybe some of this conflict you know is not going to be resolved within individual organizations but it's playing out because ultimately if what's best for staff and learners is for example to invest in mental health support services but that's expensive and it then reduces the amount of money that's being made mm. uh you can't have both those realities that coexist um so which is why one of the reasons why I think maybe the reason why we're only talking about this now is because there is an understanding that is beginning to impact on quality and therefore funders are becoming concerned because they they're not you know they do want to have good research and they may be beginning to realize that the way that they've been doing it isn't working so the welcome trust said um uh, their report said the relentless drive for research excellent has created a culture in modern science that cares exclusively exclusively about what is achieved and not about how it is achieved. And that is almost word for word the same as some of the research I 
I read about child protection and, and other fields about it's all about what you're doing and not h- how you're doing it. Yeah. But then, I mean, if you think about the way you just framed that, you were talking about how the outputs are suffering. Um, so even then, it's still about what's being achieved. It's That's just true. that you're now saying that how it's achieved is a p- fundamental part of what's achieved. So, it's- and, it, and it's frustrating because that's what I'm, I'm doing my research as well, is arguing that actually on your own terms, you should care about this because if you care about outputs, you should care about how it's done because that affects outputs. <laughs> but this is the kind of fundamental thing, right? Because I, if, peop- if the research environment is making people suffer, even if the outputs are brilliant, I still don't think it should happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> But I know that's not like smart business speak. <laughs> but then this is this is the problem with, I mean, the culture of academia and the culture of loads of industries in general, isn't it? That it's it, just people just don't care about people. They care about what they're producing. And that's that's really, I was going to say unfortunate, int- but that's a massive understatement. <laughs> now let's talk about Marx's theory of alienation. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so it's not brilliant and there's you know, we're not experts in any of this stuff, but it's just us discussing kind of what what we're reading, what we're experiencing, kind of our relation to it. But um, what do you think can be done about it? I mean, some of this stuff like we just got at is kind of quite systematic change. Um, yeah, I think, well, from my point of view, I think you need a massive overhaul of the way that the government approaches research funding and also how it approaches just universities in general. So you would need to change the way league tables work, maybe even scrap league tables. That may sound really controversial to a lot of British people, but in other countries, like in, I think in Belgium and places like that, they just don't have university league tables. You go to the university near you because it's near you and they're all good and no one would think that there's, you know, oh, I'm not going there because it's not good enough. Whereas here, it's all about prestige. Um, And I think also as part of that, maybe even completely scrapping things like the REF, the Research Excellence Framework, which is how they measure, um, you know, the quality of research um, and the TEF, the Teaching Excellence Framework as well, and all of these things, either scrapping them or at least completely transforming them. Because I think the best way to create change on the sort of front line (laughs) is from my point of view, at least in this case, would be to create change up above. Because if suddenly people were not striving towards meeting these random targets, then it would it would take so much pressure off so quickly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, maybe we could talk in a different episode about why, what's mm-hmm. driven those things other than neoliberalism. Um, but yeah, I think realistically, some of these issues are always going to exist for as long as we've got these kind of demands Mm. but that doesn't get employers and universities off the hook and so I suppose what what do we think so yeah we we agree there needs to be sort of system change but in terms of in the short term in terms of things that institutions could do better than others what would you think are some of those suggestions well I think one one um massive thing would be to reduce or maybe get rid of temporary contracts um, because there's too many of them and that level of precarity causes so much stress and anxiety for loads of people, um, I think. And it also makes it competitive, right? Because you're constantly having to think, how am I going to justify myself for my next job? Like, how am I going to secure the next contract? Mm. So I need to be doing all this extra work to make sure I get it. So it's like, yeah. Um, Do you have any ideas? Well, 
Yeah, I mean, definitely casualization and employment practices. Um, and it's also uh, means that there's so much misinformation because and, and, and induction processes aren't as good as they could be because um, if you're only doing like a zero hours type job, then you kind of don't, it's not necessary. It's a bit overkill to kind of like do a proper induction. But then if you end up doing a zero hours job for three years, you really should have been inducted to the system a bit better. <laughs> um, and so there's lots of things within that that could actually sort of support having clear lines of like line management and um, things that would would help. So it's all wrapped up in that casual, casualization issue. Yeah. Um, I think you can also create culture change by, um, I've seen things on Twitter, like people posting their failures and that kind of stuff. And I think if you, in a department, everyone shares their successes and shares their failures and they um everyone's allowed to be more honest about what they're struggling with it's hard to know how to do that and obviously that's the eternal question is how do you create culture change but i think you know you can instigate things like you know we're going to do a departmental newsletter and we're going to publish things we've done well and also things we've sucked at <laughs> yeah definitely and the other thing which is shown to be effective around kind of bullying harassment discrimination is being by like encouraging a culture of bystanding mm. um where if you're a witness to things even if you're not directly affected like you call it out when you see it and um yeah. i actually had some experience of this recently where some more senior colleagues this wasn't related to my phd i've had a really good phd experience but uh other things i'm involved with um but some senior kind of colleagues at the university just really showed me support in a way that was like we've got you like we're going to support you we're not going to let anyone kind of intimidate you and that that was really empowering because, okay, some people are bullies, but a lot of people aren't. And yeah. there are generally more people that aren't than are. And so if those people stand up and speak out, obviously in a way that's safe to do so, that might not always be like intervening, like, stop. But it could be <laughs> reporting it. It could be providing evidence for that person to support them. It could be just asking them if they're okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, proactively calling things out when that happens, I think is important. Yes. I think also one of the, like I was just reflecting on my supervisors because like you, I've, I've had a, you know, a really good experience in general. Um, and what's, what do I like about them? What's, what's good? What helps create this, um, this reduced sense of stress and tension with them? Um, and I think it's that they don't take things too seriously. Um, they, they are willing to laugh about the problems and to say, you know, it's not that big a deal and, you know, encourage me, but also to, not, not push me to do things I'm not, I'm not willing, you know, not comfortable doing or, you know, not to put too much pressure on me. And I think if you can, you know, have a laugh, <laughs> that's actually really important. And it can, it can make things seem a lot easier because they suddenly don't seem quite so serious as they did five minutes ago, if you're now joking about it. Yeah, definitely. And I think that my kind of final thing on the kind of border changes, and then I've We've got one final question, mm -hmm. but the broader changes, I think linked to that is having breaks. Um, it links to the whole work, uh, working hours thing, because it's having opportunities to do social things, to have mm -hmm. breaks, to go to like singing club <laughs> at lunchtime <laughs> or whatever. Because we're excellent singers. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, students kind of have the societies, which are a bit of an outlet for that. But in some ways, staff, you know, really benefit from having those opportunities to 
interact with each other, not related to their research, but the shared experiences that they have. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons why picket lines can be really powerful <laughs> is because on the picket line, you can meet people like, oh, I've seen you around the office, but we've not actually spoken yet. And like, mm. let's build human relationships with each other and recognize we're in the same boat and we're not all competing with each other in this kind of cutthroat way, but we can like help each other and like help us through it. Um, or just laugh about stuff like, yeah. you know, and have some humor and kind of all that stuff. Um, yeah. Speaking of picket lines, presumably one really important thing we can all do is join a union. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was going to, yeah, that was my next thing about kind of advice for individuals um, that may be affected by some of these things like mental health or bullying and difficulties on their courses or what they're doing. Um, and yes, trade unions um, have been very important throughout history at improving conditions like they've not been given they've generally been won um and things have deteriorated but they can be improved again <laughs> i'm trying to think about what the opposite <laughs> of de deteriorated is <laughs> Reteriorated. <laughs> um but anyway so joining trade union so in um universities pgrs phd students can join ucu for free and as you know from our other kind of breakaway episodes i'm very much involved in ucu and there's both, there's two ways that can help. One is individual casework. So if someone, for example, is experiencing bullying, harassment, those sorts of things, they might be able to be supported by a caseworker to help them manage that. Um, not struggling on their own, but there's also things that the UCU can do as a collective in terms of changing institutional policies, changing national policies, um, and also building that solidarity, right? Like, well, we're all in the union, we're all in the union, even though we're at different professional levels, we're all at different points in our research career. Some people are academic related staff, some people are academic, like, but we're, we are the university and this is the university that we want to have, like, this is the university we want to see, not the one that management has. So, yeah. yeah. Any other final tips? I think you don't have to put up with these situations. And I think unless you're in a really awful situation, um, most of us know someone that we can talk to, we can ask for advice. Um, and so, you know, if you are being bullied or if you are struggling with your mental health, seek help for it because you don't have to put up with these things. And the more that we try and say no to them and to make things better for ourselves, the less it's going to become just an accepted part of the culture. Yeah, absolutely. And don't blame yourself. And, yes. you know, you are not a failure or somehow bad at what you do because you're struggling. And this is kind of my final thing, actually. I was shocked, and I know we've spoken about this before, about how when I started my PhD, everybody told me how dreadful it was going to be and how online people talk about how bad it is. And there's these reports which say how bad it is. Yeah. And we seem to be getting very aware of how bad it is. And yet I'm, I worry that that makes it harder to get help because it makes it so normal that it's like just expected, like that mm -hmm. you are going to feel rubbish and that's part of the process. So get on with it. Whereas for me, if you are struggling, if you're experiencing symptoms of anxiety, depression, if it's having an impact on your life, if people are bullying you, there is some support. I think some of it's inadequate <laughs> for various reasons, which we aren't going to go into, but it's still there and people should take it and by speaking openly about it in a way that's like so we shouldn't only speak about it in terms of how bad it is mm -hmm. like because and people should you know individually talk openly whatever they feel comfortable saying mm -hmm. but um that's up to them but 
we need to be careful about how we're laying how we're feeding into this normative culture that it's normal, that this is all normal and part of it, the job and you, and we're all experiencing it and we're all in it together and we just have to get on with it. Um, but alongside that stuff, be talking about what can we do about it? Who can you turn to? What resources are there? What actually helps? Um, what can make a difference? And maybe we've fallen into that a little bit today because we're kind of new and we don't necessarily know, but there is stuff out there. Yeah. I think just to immediately follow on with that with some like a personal example, my mental health when I arrived at uni wasn't great. Um, and actually, I think it's got a lot better over the time I've been doing my PhD. So you don't have to feel like it's going to be only bad for you because it isn't. And I sort of mentioned in a previous podcast that, you know, I think it's actually given me a lot of space to work on my mental health and to get a lot better than I was. And that's not to say it's not done me any harm along the way. I've certainly had really low points, but I think overall I'm a lot a lot better place than I was when I started. So it can be a good thing and it doesn't have to be this bad. And we've both got great supervisors. So you can find really good people to work with. You can surround yourself with amazing friends, like, like, you know, lovely B and Ben. You can do a podcast. <laughs> yeah, you can do a podcast. <laughs> so, it, you know, I won't just keep listing great things, but <laughs> it doesn't have to be bad. It doesn't have to be like the things we've been discussing here. Um, but it doesn't mean that won't it will always be good but it you know yeah absolutely so in conclusion overall there's challenges it's not ideal together we can fight for a different type of university different type of research environment and culture but in the meantime use what support there is talk to each other be nice don't be horrible to each other and that's it <laughs> we've solved it <laughs> <laughs> done um, okay so thanks for listening to this episode of the social universe if you want to find out more about the topics we've covered in this week's episode we will share links to the reports and sources that we've spoken about in our show notes and I think we should have a positive news story to end the show <laughs> I had not thought of one though <laughs> well I did sort of just give one but um, I think particularly for people who are considering doing PhDs you know don't let this put you off um, we can be, you can be part of the change that you want to see. <laughs> Absolutely. If you'd like to ask questions or have your say on the issues we're discussing, you can find us on Twitter at universe underscore social. Or you can email us at social.universe at outlook.com. Thanks for joining us and hope you enjoyed this trip around the social universe.